This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is my co-host, Brian Rinaldi. How you doing, Brian? I'm great, Ed. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, it's starting to get a little bit of springtime. It's warming up, at least where I am. I'm up to a nice 75 degrees outside, so it's uh, starting to get to be weather where you can actually go out and do things. Which Yeah, we call that where I am. That's like year-round. Uh, where you're at, it's more like 95 degrees year-round. No, it was nice this winter. You'd be jealous. You were here. <laughs> you know. It was nice. It was nice a couple weeks ago. Um, I've been was, there, done that. You guys can keep the summers. It was it was 90, yes, almost 90 yesterday. But Oh, see, that's too hot for me. That bad. But today it's only like 78, so nice. If I've got to turn the air conditioner on, I'm not a happy camper. Um, I'm a well, cold weather guy. If you live down here, you live with the air conditioner. <laughs> it never goes off. So we're back for another Developer Digest show. So every couple weeks, we put out a newsletter with the latest and greatest articles, and we talk about what's happening in the tech industry or software development industry. Um where we've got some hot topics today, so some of those may not be in this week's newsletter. They'll probably drop on the next, but we've got some, you know, hot late-breaking news. Which uh, it's been kind of a kind of a slow time uh, this early spring with uh, with tech announcements. So it's nice to have some some big hitters in there. So I, I guess uh, let's get started with a little bit of uh, the JavaScript world and uh, the. Always, uh, creative Burke Holland wrote a, an article about, uh, micro packages. Um, the era of micro packages is the title of the article. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, I think this is mostly, he focuses on JavaScript, but it doesn't actually completely, I think, exclusively apply to JavaScript, but essentially what he's saying is that, you know, in a world with where it's easy just to add, you know, do npm install, whatever. We've come to rely on increasingly trivial, I guess. It maybe that sounds maybe more judgmental because he's not really saying that, but just increasingly small libraries that have like do maybe one little thing, um, and <clears throat> in some cases are only a handful of lines long. But it's easier to npm install such and such to do that than, than to write it yourself. Um, but that also adds a great deal of complexity in terms of like the dependencies of your app. Yeah, so you're, yeah, you're right. There's, it's not limited to just uh, JavaScript and npm, but uh, you know, I've experienced this maybe a little bit more with uh, the npm world. Um, so the, the idea is to make things more like a uh, Lego brick style of development where you pick up just the bits that you need and you can assemble this wonderful application using only the parts of it that are necessary to whatever your application is doing and functioning with. But uh, it also turns into a big pile of 
like spaghetti trying to configure these applications after a while, I find. So you end up with a configuration file or a package file that's just polluted with all of these different little packages and uh, they're all like piece piecemeal together and they may be part of a bigger entity, but you know, you have like, uh, take Angular, for example, you'll have Angular forms and Angular uh, this and that and the other thing, and they're just one after another. And by the time you're done, you've got eight packages just to have an Angular application. Uh, yeah. And then you get into other things, and it starts doing that as well. So it, it can get messy really quick. And while I understand where it's coming from, um, I think the implementation of it may be lacking. Uh, so, you know, we, we see this in .NET as well, and a little bit more as of recent. Um, they, they've actually done this with, um, with some of the .NET Core libraries. So what they've done to alleviate this in .NET is they have uh, what's been referred to as a meta package. And I, I don't even think that's uh, a, an actual term. <laughs> it's just like something that's been loosely coined in the community. Um, and what this is like, if you have uh, five or six packages that kind of go together, um, you can load the, the top level package and it'll kind of bring all those together. But if you wanted to go and just use like one or two of those six packages, you could. So there's kind of like, uh, if take Angular, for example, you could say, give me Angular and it'll give you all of it versus, you know, each little individual piece. Yeah. Um, so I think Angular and, and some of the JavaScript stuff may need something similar. Yeah, there are bundle it all up and install it in one shot. Yeah, there, there. You know, people were talking about in the comments about like um, macro packages and like basically then using you know tree shaking as they call it to kind of get only what you need, or even other. Um, Tools like one was mentioned called Bit, which is is designed to help you manage all these dependencies. Um, so I think there is it's obviously a problem that it's not just like Burke that sees it or other you know the it's a problem that people are dealing with across the board um, and trying to figure out how they solve it uh, in a way that that doesn't you know that I guess the point is people are not thrilled with the status quo where we have all these different packages and you're installing things that I, I thought like the whole, you know, this idea that you install something is essentially just a simple function that I, sh I probably should just put into my app um, rather than npm install it. But I, I find that I am tend to be in the minority when if you talk to the community about that, right? they think, no, no, I just npm install it. I'd rather do that than actually like you know, bring that function every time into my into my application because it's a maintenance nightmare and blah blah blah. And I, I I tend to be to disagree. I think we sometimes think about we use maintenance as a um, catch-all excuse for things. You know, when we don't want to be bothered with something, mm -hmm. um, because I can always say, oh, that's that's a maintenance nightmare, but I never really have to prove it. There's no I never have to show that it would really be in these cases because I've, you know, in my experience, I've built these big apps and you tended to have these kind of utility functions you'd bring in. Like I, I'd often have a little, you know, 
um, utility library that I kind of bring into each app independently, I wouldn't, not like npm install, and we could just update it. But those kind of functions aren't the kind of functions that are the maintenance nightmare, right? The maintenance yeah. nightmare comes in the complex things, not in the silly little functions that, that remove padding on a string, you know? That's not where I'm like, oh, I really need to go update that function. Rarely. Yeah, I, I know people used to bellyache over uh, jQuery a lot. Like, they complain that, you know, just adding jQuery to my application, you know, bloats it by 300 kilobytes or whatever it is. And if you look at, like, any web application, just a single, like, 16 by 16 image is usually more than enough to, <laughs> yeah. to, to clean out that that little bit of savings you're making there. Yeah, so, well, I even wrote about that Goochly uh, JPEG encoder that Google released because mm -hmm. you know, they're trying to reduce the size of JPEGs. And, um, and the thing is, is that, uh, you know, I think based on the numbers I quoted there, images were 65% of page weight. And that was in 2015. So... My suspicion is that problem has probably just gotten worse. I don't have proof of that, but I couldn't find anything more recent. But, you know, even then, it, you know, your JavaScript was not insignificant, but it wasn't the biggest problem. Yeah, I mean, unless you're building applications that scale up like Facebook size, you know, the saving 10K on a piece of JavaScript is really not a big deal. I mean, if you're you talking should. about millions and millions of transactions, you know, right. an hour, then maybe that's a problem. But if you're building a, a VPN-based, uh, you know, application inside of your network and you got 20 users a day that are banging away on it, I mean, you yeah. really need to choose your battles. Yep. And for the most part, that's where a lot of software development takes place, right? It's just like inside the corporation and you're you're building those line of business applications and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah, we'll see. The pendulum pendulum shall swing in the other direction, I'm sure. Yeah, speaking of large um JavaScript libraries. <laughs> we have a celebration, right? Uh hot hot news as of today, I think it is, right? Yeah. Uh as of March 24th. Uh, Angular 4.0 is now available. Yep. And for those uh, who haven't been paying attention and may be wondering, wait a second, wasn't I just moving to Angular 2? Did I miss Angular 3? And oh my God, now I have to learn Angular 4. Well, you see, um, you know, Angular uses TypeScript now, and that, that means you have to follow uh, the Microsoft frame of mind, and you just skip numbers with Microsoft. You know, you have Windows 8 and then 10, and you totally skip 9, and then uh, you have ASP.NET MVC 4, 5, and then you skip 6 and go back to 1. So, you know, Google's, Google needs to get into the trend of skipping numbers and jumping around with versioning. So yep. here we are at Angular 4. Uh, 3 was so yesterday. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and now we're up to version 4.0. And uh, it comes with some improvements and uh, some rejiggering of some things to make it a little more organized. So yeah. uh, I guess it's smaller. Uh, we were talking about shrinking and saving some kilobytes, and uh, they've made it smaller and faster. 
So, yeah, that's what they say, and they're calling it an, an invisible makeover. So mm-hmm. um, theoretically, all your the you know if you're already in the middle of transitioning to Angular two, which by the way we have a uh, if you go to TDN, we've been doing a month of Angular articles to help you do do that transition. But um, but if you already transitioning to Angular two and are freaking out over Angular four, it shouldn't it shouldn't be an issue. Although they themselves say, quote, is backwards compatible with 2.x for most applications? Most. I, I like don't know. That. That's yeah. a generalized that, term that's, that we can just throw scary. around. Yeah, most. Um, I'm sure most listeners enjoy you being on the show, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that... It seems a little bit... That's all in the first paragraph. They both call it an invisible makeover and then say it's compatible with most applications that are written in two. So um, maybe not quite as invisible as they'd hoped. I don't know. I don't know what... It doesn't really get into um, exactly what the the issues would be. I think there's some, it's a, it does go into some known issues and how to update, but it doesn't say, I don't see anything specifically that says where, which would be the ones that fall into not most. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd be a little skeptical of this compatibility they're talking about because they've jumped two version numbers. And the reason you do that with uh, semantic versioning is because you probably have breaking changes. Well, so if you're not yeah. breaking changes, then why are we changing the version numbers? So, so I mean, I think there's a bit of a story behind that. First of all, they were not, they did not use semantic versioning before. So, and I think part of what happened, I was, I as I had understood it, somebody had checked in something that was under a version three flag or something like that. And so they ended up just deciding rather than, trying to backtrack or anything they they were just jumped to four i don't know i don't know the exact story behind it um so i don't i don't think uh if you believe their their the list here it's really not there's no breaking changes so i think yeah usually you'd uh jump like that would imply that would that there would be but and uh, it says that there are uh, view engine changes that um, bring some some good savings as far as efficiency to uh, rendering. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some cool features that they added to the templating syntax that let you do uh, flow control. So you have if-then statements in your templating now, uh, which is very nice to have. Um, some TypeScript 2.2 compatibility added. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some definite uh, cool features that have been added to this version. So if you've been looking for those things, they're here now. You can install it and try them out. Um, I tell you, though, I, I believe I'm going to go to uh, Windows 9 and build Angular 3 applications just to be a hipster. <laughs> so I think that's where it's at. Yeah. You should write a whole <laughs> article. Building Angular 3 applications in Windows 9. <laughs> That is the biggest clickbait title. I think we should use that somewhere. Yeah, I think you should write the article. It doesn't, you know, it just could be a parody or something. Like oh, that. man. If I find the bandwidth for that, I'm so doing it. Yeah. 
<laughs> just just to to bring about my credibility as a developer, I think I need to do that. <laughs> so, um, as I as I already mentioned, one of the things that that I wanted to kind of reiterate, especially since we're talking about Angular four, we we were actually in the midst of our month of Angular on the Telerik Developer Network, where um, we. We had a number of articles, a white paper, and a whole Angular migration guide being published. Um, so we're up to, let's see, I'm, I'm going to count them right now, three three articles, one white paper, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, about 11 migration guides. Nice. We're almost done. we got a few more to come, um, but because the month is almost over. But uh, be sure to check it out um, if you are looking to upgrade. Even if you're going to say jump from one to four go and go crazy, um, this is still all relevant because as we because as as we just discussed, uh, you know the the concepts and code from two should work for most apps. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, a lot of those articles are by the uh, amazing Todd Motto and. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some other authors in there as well contribute. TJ's got some articles up there. TJ Vantel uh, from our native script team, our native script side of our uh, developer relations team uh, has an article up there. Uh, Jen Looper, I believe, has... No, Tara. Uh, Tara. Oh, Tara. Tara has an article up there as well. So there's good stuff uh, to, to yeah. get up to speed on all things Angular in this month of Angular on developer.tellerk.com. So go check it out. Yep. And then there's uh, an article today about, or actually yesterday. So, uh, so this was uh, pre-Angular 4, <laughs> but it has nothing to do with Angular, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so building a conversational bot with JavaScript and Node.js. We talked about a little bit of this before. Uh, yep. This is something that you've been working on. Um, oh, and wow. Yeah, you've been working on this a while, and I'm excited to see because I just got an Amazon tap a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so this has to do with like Alexa and all that good stuff, right? Uh, it's not Alexa. I did do an Alexa article like oh. six months ago. This one's not this Alexa. Alexa. This one's actually so if you want to build, I built it in a Telnet bot, but you could actually build it for Slack um, or there's other connectors using the same library that I use. Um, so if you want to build a, this is more like a, a chat bot, right? Um, and it's using this library called SuperScript.js. And so it's for having conversations with, with you know, with a bot. Um, but they, it can do kind of complex things rather than just say command response, which is your typical, like Alexa does mostly just command response. Like I say something, mm -hmm. Alexa responds. But then the next thing I say Alexa doesn't actually relate back to the prior thing. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so it doesn't keep like the context. It's not like you're having a conversation. Right? Exactly. There's no context. Whereas this actually keeps the context of the conversation and can even remember things that you say about yourself. Like, like if you if it asks you like what's your name and you tell it your name, it can remember your name any time later on in the conversation. Right? It never needs yeah. to. You never need to repeat that, or you can even have these conversations that branch off into more comp so that it's not just um, me sending a command and the bot responding, like it's going down these this tree of conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah, if so, anybody's used, um, I know this is a very small crowd, but if 
if any of you five people that used Windows Phone are listening, um, Cortana was actually really good at this. So you could start a conversation around, uh, remind me to do something, and then you know, three or four sentences in, it's still in the context of, okay, we're setting up a, a, a task, the, a reminder, and we might be, you know, uh, saying, and when I'm at uh, this location, you know, do this or that, and it would still understand that you're in the context of this reminders conversation. Exactly. So, so I did what any normal person would do when seeing a tool like this, and I, I rebuilt uh, essentially like recreated uh, the the AI from the movie Alien that runs the ship, the Nostromo, called they call it Mother. Uh, so I mean, it's kind of it kind of was the obvious thing to work on, and I just walked through how I did that, but it could, partly because it gave me a bunch of really fun examples of not just branching conversations and learning a little bit about you, but even doing cool things like, like I can call plugins that actually go out and use web API. So I use a web an API to, to determine your location and then get the time of the, and then another API to get the time of the sunrise based on your location. Um, so, and things like that. So it was, it was a lot of fun to write. Um, you know, it is a long article, but I, I it goes into a lot of detail and, and the guys who, who built this project are really cool and really helpful. I mean, probably of any project I've ever used, they were the most responsive and most helpful of anybody. Nice. Every time I sent out a question within an hour or something, they had, they had a response. And they, they actually sat with me like to kind of work through things and figure stuff out. As it turns out, I wanted to do a bunch of things that were non-obvious. Like, for instance... Um, Typically with bots, you would say something and it says something back, right? Um, but I wanted to do something where I would say like, oh, you know, in the case of like in the movie Alien where the ship explodes, it, once she set off the, the timer, it kept saying, oh, you know, the ship will self-destruct in four minutes and then the ship will self-destruct in three minutes, you know? So I wanted it to, you set off a timer and the bot would keep telling you, oh, by the way, it's going to self-destruct. Um, but it would have to keep saying things on its own. It's not going to tell you that how many minutes are left just right. when you give a command. So it has to keep responding. And that was, turns out, not super complicated, but it was non-trivial also. Yeah, it's not quite as straightforward as the yeah. the uh, back and forth type bots yeah. like Alexa. Where it's like, yep. play music. Okay, here's your music. It doesn't yeah. ever come back and say, uh, you know, you want to play something different now or... <laughs> uh, yeah. Would you like me to I, shuffle I, this or something? This stuff is a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun building that Alexa skill. Um, and if if Alexa, the one thing I'd say for this and that, and this was even easier than Alexa, um, unless it's gotten better, but they're really hard to debug. Like figuring out what went wrong is often really difficult. Uh, in this case, it was a little bit easier because I'm running it all via the command line locally. But for Alexa, it was I often had to put, I had to, upload the code into the cloud and then and then wait for it to fail and then it would give me some archaic message that give, gave me no idea what went wrong and I had to go back and like oh let me see if I could figure out what I did um, but it was I mean once you got it done it was really cool but 
you know, getting to that point was not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard rumors that um, Microsoft is licensing or are putting out APIs for Cortana um, that will be able to take advantage of like IoT devices. So like a headless uh, device uh, similar to the Amazon Echo or the Google was it Google Home? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, so you you might see a Cortana enabled um, soda can device in the future, and uh, hopefully that happens. Um, that was one of the the more robust like personal assistants I've seen, and uh, it like I said, it could do those conversational type of things. So it'd be cool to see if they release that what people can build with it. I think you would enjoy it, Brian, if you could get a hold of the Cortana brain and try to make something out of it. Yeah, that would be fun. You know, I love all these things. I don't, I, I will, I will admit that I keep running into the problem of like what would, what would be useful to do with it. Um, and I have some ideas for, for these chatbots. I have fewer ideas for Alexa because I, I have, I have Alexa sitting here and I never use it. Yeah, I've, I've yet to investigate like what's available on the Windows 10 Cortana APIs. Um, I know there, I know there's some hooks in there. I don't know how deep you can go, but uh, what, what I'd like to try to build is like say like wire it up to the Angular CLI. So you can say, I, Cortana, build me an Angular application that uses SaaS, and it's you know it fires up your console and does angular dash whatever sass yeah. thing is to install that and you and i had the same idea i thought it was i think chatbots are a way to simplify great way to simplify command line stuff where i don't personally love the command line but i i i thought you know if you could have a chatbot where i could just plug in like say i write a plugin for sass and i write a plugin for and you know different other tooling and then that way I could just chat with my bot and say like, oh, set up this and launch the server. But I'm using natural language and I don't have to remember all the, the you know, the flags like, oh, is it dash V or is it dash F, you know? Like, yeah. I never remember that stuff. And it doesn't, it's not, because it's not even intuitive anyway. But if I could just tell it like, you know, do this with that and whatever, then, and it understood me, that would make complete sense to me. That would make the command line make sense to me anyway, but... Maybe I'm, um, you know, maybe I'm weird. Yeah, I mean, you could even go as far as to, like, alias things once once you issue it a series of commands and say, you know, Cortana, call that, um, you know, mobile responsive app or something, and next time you just say, build me a mobile responsive template, and it starts going to town. Yep. There's a lot so, of fun you could probably have there. Um, yeah. The only thing that we need to keep in mind is, like, the two of us, we work at home, so we don't look uh, insane to other people when we're talking to our computers and little devices everywhere. So I don't know how much of an audience is out there for this stuff that we're conceiving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but there's got, I think there's gotta be like that whole idea that of the complexity of all of our tooling. I think, you know, the, to me, this is a way to solve that potentially make it less complex so that I don't have to go like, you know, not only, install a tool chain of like 20 tools to just build a simple web app right but then remember all the 
commands and other stuff of that tool chain. Um, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so we got... That's my uh, crazy ideas. Yeah. We've got one, one more item on the agenda here. Um, so this is something that's happening in Microsoft land. Mm-hmm. And um, Microsoft has this history of doing these type of things. And to kind of sum it up, like they they have these frameworks like uh, ASP.NET and, um, you know, MVC is built on top of ASP.NET. And then you have mm-hmm. other small frameworks like uh, authentication and any framework. Um, mm-hmm. and these, all these things, uh, JSON, uh, JSON.NET. Uh, so to take JSON and parse it into objects and back and forth, there's a a framework for that. So there's all these kind of Microsoft sanctioned uh, frameworks that you use to build applications. And then there's the open source community. And then there's third party commercial software where a lot of our Telerik stuff fits in. So for example, um, UI controls and uh, stuff like that is, you know, we, we do third party software and it's it's, most of it's commercial. So you, you buy it and install it. Um, or you have a contract uh, service agreement on things, uh, stuff like that. So th- there's this ecosystem out there. And, and Microsoft has this habit of deciding that certain things need to be baked into a certain framework or ecosystem. So Entity Frameworks are a really good example of this, right? Mm-hmm. They, there were open source ORMs. There were commercial ORMs. Uh, in fact, um, before Progress bought Telerik. So there was a Telerik open access ORM, which is still a product today, but it's not something that we sell. And I think it's starting to, um, I think it's out of support now. So uh, we, we had an ORM and there was no such thing as any framework at the time. And Microsoft decided that there should be an ORM baked into .NET development. And they went and started building um, entity framework. So mm-hmm. fast forward years down the road, uh, we have a, a defunct ORM product and everybody uses uh, entity framework because it's part of .NET, right? And, uh, you know, this could go, it doesn't have to be commercial. It doesn't have to be a paid product. This can happen to open source stuff as well. So you don't see a whole lot of uh, open source ORMs being used. Uh, from time to time, you'll see some, but general rule of thumb is people use, you know, the one for Microsoft. Right. You know, you're building .NET apps, so you use the Microsoft thing. Uh, so once again, uh, we've hit this milestone where uh, Microsoft is uh, kind of um, putting the idea out there that they want to do a object mapper. So this is something where maybe you have a data access layer and then those objects that come back from your data database uh, need to map to um, some UI models or something like that. So, you know, you have um, a data access object that needs to map to user interface uh, view models. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, it looks for things like, does the object have a property named first name and last name? If they do, we'll go ahead and just map those two things across from one to the other. So uh, the community already has a tool for this. It's called AutoMapper. 
And uh, there's actually a couple other open source projects as well. Automapper is probably the biggest by far. Um, so, you know, they're kind of putting out there that they want to build this same system into uh, ASP.NET MVC, mm-hmm. but, you know, we kind of already have it. So it brings up the question, like, does the developer of Automapper continue on and hope that people still use his library? Um, yeah. Does it retire it eventually? You know, it, it kind of steps on toes in my opinion. Like, you know, you've got this thing that works perfectly fine yet Microsoft decides that they want to have their own version of it. And it, it kind of closes out the competition and, and shuts down the ecosystem for at least for that component of uh, the application. Yeah, you know, I think this, I've seen this before, and it really, I think it goes back to any proprietary uh, technologies. You run that risk, you know, um, because I, I know, like when I, so I, I came from the Adobe world, right? Um, and this was a, a common issue whereby, like, say, Flash or, or Flex when I was doing that stuff, right? Um, you know, all of a sudden the next version comes out and it basically, um, you know, eliminates the need for um, a particular uh, library that's been widely used. Uh, and the person, whether it's commercial or not, the person who was creating it is like, uh, what what happened? You know, they didn't yeah. even know, and they get put out of, essentially put out of business. Um, or the, or you know, in the case of like an open source project, obviously, on the one hand, um, it's not you're not getting put out of business, but you've put a lot of effort into this. And I'd say the one the one place like I think it's kind of goes with the territory, and I hate to say that to some degree um, when you're dealing with companies like Microsoft or, or Adobe or whatever, the big big companies that have proprietary technologies. On the other hand, um, and I don't know, I'm obviously not well-versed in how they're dealing with it here, but on the other hand, I'd say um, oftentimes the, it's, the company doesn't deal with it well. There's a right way to do this and involve the people who are behind some of these, these tools and try to you know, make it so that it's not like we're just putting you out of business and, you know, I've seen it where they've given a heads up ahead of time and, and integrate them into the process. How should we do this? You know, um, and, you know, so on. So I think, um, you know, there's, it, it's partly how it's handled. It's kind yeah. of unavoidable, but it's also, should be, you know, if it's handled well, then, it, you know, it's okay. Yeah, only time will tell. Um, you know, they they've at least started a conversation uh, on GitHub uh, to to try to address the situation. Um, mm-hmm. So they haven't really officially built anything yet. They've got some like demo ideas out there. They're taking feedback. Uh, a lot of that feedback so far has been, uh, "What about this thing we already have?" <laughs> Uh, so the community is kind of piping up. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. Um, in previous um, iterations of, of this type of issue, um, I know Microsoft has adopted um, open source stuff. So like the .NET, uh, JSON.NET library is um, 
not something that was built from Microsoft, but rather the community, um, actually pretty much one, one person in the community, but, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there were many contributors to the project, but it was, you know, spearheaded by, uh, James Newton King and, uh, they they've widely adopted his technology into um, a lot of .NET applications, and it's part of the final new project templates and all that stuff. So it's uh, it's interesting to see how this will play out. Uh, so I, I'm pretty sure there were plenty of other uh, JSON libraries out there at the time they did that, and I'm sure there was lots of drama surrounding it as well. So I don't know if there's a, a any clear winner uh, in any uh, outcome, but, uh, we'll see. So. Yeah, no, I mean, this is usually not a clear, clear win. Like there's not, uh, even, even when I've seen it handled well, it's still not necessarily a good outcome for whoever had the project beforehand, but at least they don't feel like they just kind of came in and trampled on me and didn't even like pretended like I didn't exist kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think we saw a little bit of this with Visual Studio this time around as well. So, like, Visual Studio 2017 came out. Uh, some of the new features that are in there um, are very much a parallel to commercial products. So, uh, things like ReSharper and uh, Just Code, um, there's very similar features in the IDE now. Mm -hmm. uh, such as refactoring tools and live unit testing and stuff like that that uh, will be interesting to see uh, how the commercial products are phased out or uh, step up and maybe add features that don't exist to, to stay alive or, yep. or how this all comes about for the end user. Yep, it'd be interesting. All right, so that wraps it up for us today, Brian. Um, do you have any uh, events coming up or um, big um, news that's, that's in the making? I will be next week. I'm going to be at Burke. Really wanted to go to this. Uh, uh, it's a developer developer relations event, um, so I'm going to be there. Um, it'll be good. Get to see Burke. Get some one-on-one -on -one time at Burke. Uh, maybe learn something about developer running developer relations. So you get to learn how to relate to developers? Yeah, apparently. I don't know. You know <laughs> I don't know how to relate to developers. So next next month is a quiet month for me, but the following month I have Stir Trek at the beginning of uh May. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after Stir Trek is build. So Microsoft Build is the following uh it's actually like two days later. Uh, and then after build, I'll be at Codepalooza. So uh, with those three events, um, I'm working with uh, several organizers of these events to allow us to set up a recording uh, room. So we'll be uh, recording Eat Sleep Code from Star Trek and Codepalooza, and I'm sure I will be able to get some uh, audio recorded again at build. Uh, cool. So we did we did a pretty uh, good set of uh, recordings last year at Build and covered all the latest and greatest news there. Uh, tried to kind of do some field interviews where we ran around with microphones and talked to folks. Uh, so we had people from .NET Rocks and lots of .NET MVPs and uh, 
evangelists from Microsoft. Uh, so we'll be doing that again. Um, if you're a, a listener, you're going to be at those events. Um, look for uh, us recording. Um, we should be able to do some live recordings uh, at those events. And uh, if you have something uh, to talk about, let us know. And uh, we'll see if we can record a show. Sounds good. So thanks a lot, Brian, for joining me on the show again. And we'll talk to everybody real soon. All right. Talk to you later.